Thanks, Chris. Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Time Studios. It is a beautiful day here in Florida on the 2nd of November, 2021. And we have a tremendous guest today. Mark Wheatley joins us from London. He is a politician in the city of London uh, who used his role there for advocating for Brexit, promoting trade links to the U.S., uh, and, and, a, and a cause near and dear to my own heart, challenging the communists in China. And presumably communists, wherever we find them right now, their power center is China. A uh, couple of fascinating tidbits before we kick in, and I'm going to welcome uh, Mark to give us some introductory remarks. Um, but uh, for, for students of American history, Mark is actually a relative of uh, Roosevelt uh, in, the, in the way that uh, P.G. O'Rourke said, this would be the socialist in the wheelchair, not the good one that shot bears. So that's okay. Uh, but as the son of, as he says, a Chilean anarchist and a British Tory. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show. Uh, we're so glad to have you here. How are things? Hi, Chris. Um, well, very good, thank you. I mean, I, I guess in terms of messy times, we're caught between Halloween and bonfire nights. So uh, I've got my kids going bananas with uh, the Halloween treats and looking forward to the bonfires that come on the 5th. So uh, yeah, and, and thanks for having me. It's great, great to be here. That's excellent. Uh, fun fact. I got my hearing damaged Guy Fox night in South Africa years ago when oh, someone put a bomb off on a beach that I, that I, was, that I was part of. So the uh, uh, Pagod, which was the people against gangsterism and drugs at the time, had a flourishing uh, wow. side business in, in uh, vigilantism. And they used that in very strange ways, one of which was damaging my hearing. So anyway, <laughs> I hope you have a more fun bonfire night. So like for that. those Americans, especially you don't really know, um, you know, the, the city of London, long history, uh, you are, are, are part of that political structure. Can you tell us a bit about that and kind of its background, where it is today, what yeah. you actually do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the city of London is a funny beast. People often think of greater London as, as the London that I'm involved with. Um, and it isn't. I mean, essentially, the city is the Roman city, the square mile right at the heart of the rest of London. Um, and it was fortified by the Romans way back, you know, nearly 2000 years um, and became really one of the trading entrepots of the Roman Empire. Uh, when the Romans left, it fell into all kinds of disarray uh, and then it was revived. And what it became was kind of the kernel for the growth of London generally. Um, and citizens in the city of London had freedoms which others kind of didn't really exercise. So when William the Conqueror came over to sort of to, well, basically biff and baff the Anglo-Saxons, um, he got to the walls of London and he realized that suppressing the city would be difficult. So he essentially struck a deal with our forebears to protect the liberties of the merchants and the citizens of, of, of London. Mm. And that gave us a kind of an interesting, I suppose, series of advantages and, and things we could work with historically. And it's those that have been the really the root of the prosperity of London and our values and our interests. So essentially over years, um, we've pr protected those liberties, you know, life, property, that, that, that kind of fundament. Um, and we've developed a significant kind of strange and quirky local, uh, lo local beast. So we are only a public authority for that square mile. We've got about 9,000 residents. Uh, we've got about half a million workers though. And that's really what gives us kind of significance in the moment because we're the home to the financial services community. And um, now, frankly, the UK financial services community is about, just, just under 7% of our economy. It's about right. 130 billion pound contributor. And for those so that, who don't know, 
the who aren't in the capital markets, the square mile is shorthand for financial services in London, much like Wall Street generally is in, in America. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is. It, it, it is a square mile physically. And, and we have our interests. Conventionally, we represent the wider financial services community wherever it's found in the UK. So that's Canary Wharf and elsewhere. Um, the Lord Mayor of the City of London, when he, he or she travels abroad, does so as kind of an ambassador for that sector of our economy. Um, but we have other interests. You know, we have our own police force. Um, so it's not the Metropolitan Police that, that look after our streets. Notionally, the Queen, much as we respect and defer to her, as we should, as good good, good Brits, um, notionally, she asks permission to enter the square mile. Uh, she doesn't sort of just barge in. Um, and we have, well, we've got some odd quirks. We own five bridges across the Thames. And I mean, that's a historic, well, I guess we wanted access to the city. But we've got a fund that supports that called the City Bridge Fund. And it's you know, it, it's got a surplus. We give about 20 million a year to charity from the surplus on that. Oh, and, right. and essentially, that, yeah, and that, that's kind of making sure we can maintain those bridges. So we've got kind of a trade role. We've got a political significance, local in terms of authority. But in terms of our influence, the combination of all of this means we have strong links in Westminster and Whitehall into the kind of the national political framework. We have very strong links with the diplomatic community in London and our embassies abroad. We have our own investment portfolio that we've built up over the years, about five billion pounds sterling. I mean, I'm not great with numbers, so it's up or down a bit on that. Um, and then we've got these other interests and charitable engagements. So we sit in an odd place in the national fabric. We're very traditional, but we've got a real significance in the moment. Yeah. And I've been involved nine years now, I think. So. That's fabulous. And, and I gather there's some excellent particular freedoms to being a student of the city of London. Like you can drive your sheep across Tower Bridge once a year or something. And if you're convicted of a capital crime, you get to be hanged with a silk rope rather than a hemp rope. So, you know, good things. Good yeah, things. yeah. I mean, I mean I, 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 I'd rather uh, avoid the conviction, but, but yeah, exactly. If you're going to go, you might as well have silk rather than hemp. And uh, true. And uh, the sheep. Well, I mean, that's, you know, it's that toll that's built up the, um, you know, I said the fund that supports right. the bridges. Because if you were a citizen, you didn't need to pay that. I think you know, a thousand years ago, it was a penny to bring in your sheep or whatever. Right. Um, you didn't need to pay that, but other people did. And that fund is what enabled us to build other bridges. The most recent being the, uh, it's called the Millennium Bridge, but we call it the Wobbly Bridge. It's right. kind of a footbridge between the South Bank and St. Paul's. And it's, you know, it's just great to be part of all of that. And uh, you know, uh, much as I admired her, it was a privilege to be, um, part of the, the the corporation team that represented our um, strong regard for Mrs. Thatcher, for Lady Thatcher, when she died, we hosted her funeral at St Paul's Cathedral, and you know it's things like that, through to our involvement with state banquets, that make me so proud to be part of the corporation in terms of what we can do there, and then what we can do commercially and politically. That's great. Well, I know as a convening body, I've, I've come across mm. the corporation a number of times. I, I was. <clears throat> very fortunate enough that someone made a grave mistake years ago and included me in a uh, dinner uh, the Lord Mayor held at the Queen's <laughs> residence in New York, uh, yeah. <laughs> which was phenomenal. Um, uh, but in terms of substantive discussions, the huh. uh, ability to convene uh, yeah. both public and private sector uh, 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 grandees and then the odd uh, person they made a mistake about uh, was, was really powerful and really kind of influential. I actually still deal with um, a few of the people I met at that dinner to this day, it was like 15 years ago. So 
Uh, I've always been impressed with with the ability. And, and New York doesn't really have anything like it. There isn't a similar sort of governing body that looks after Wall Street as a public public service. I mean, in theory, kind of New York does. But so what, what are the big priorities now? What what, what was the lead, in the lead up to Brexit? You you saw the vision clearly. Uh, you wrote a, a great preface for uh, Bepi Pizzulli's Lots of Brexit, which was delightful, um, which hopefully will become available to English readers soon. Um, but, you know, what, what were the main things that you saw coming into that into that vote? And, you know, what made you so strongly pro-Brexit in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely adore the corporation and I, I really respect my colleagues. Um, and that always sounds like a kind of an ominous preface to something that's going to be yeah, <laughs> the other way. Um, as you say, I mean, I think what we, we can do really powerfully is exercise influence by getting people together and, and talking. What we don't always do so well, and it's probably like any group, you know, we reflect who we are and our own predilections and assumptions and our own bias. Um, and I, you know, my mum, as I, I think you touched on earlier, my mum was a Chilean anarchist, my dad was a Yorkshire Tory. And I've always been a bit of an odd beast in that I have respect for tradition, I have respect for institutions. But one of the things my mum always informed me about when I was you know, a kid was to be a bit sceptical about institutional thinking. And as Brexit began to come forward, I mean, I, even right the way through the vote, I had some kind of conflicting views. Um, I wasn't kind of 100 you know, percent committed. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think when that conversation first started, I was a mild Eurosceptic. But, you know, once the, the referendum was guaranteed, I wasn't sure quite which way I'd vote. But the more and more I got washed in what I thought was really fanciful, overblown and kind of well, basically doom-mongering. You know, if Brexit happens, the world will fall apart. Um, you know, nobody I know who earns, and these are almost direct quotes, nobody I know who earns more than £400,000 is going to vote for Brexit. Right. And the more and more people are saying things like that to me, the more I thought, well, I, don't, I just don't get this. The European Union has had some, there's been some benefit, particularly for the financial services community from, from membership of the EU. I, I really do get that. But the way I saw it was there's this kind of political superstructure that's layering upon all the other good stuff. Right. And it was increasingly dirigist. I mean, you can see it at the moment with what's going on in Poland. You can see it with, well, actually, what's going on in Germany. There's that kind of contention between national constitutional arrangements and this kind of emergent superstructure. And the more and more I looked at the EU, I, you know, I get the contribution in some measure to security, but frankly, NATO was there. So I, you know, I thought the EU is grabbing almost the entirety of something that isn't its praise. And a lot of the rest of the stuff that we were sort of lavishing these kind of extravagant sort of views on the EU over were really aspirations. They weren't achievements. Um, it's things yeah. that you might do in due, due course. And to do those, I thought it's becoming increasingly liberal. Um, and the more and more I kind of just spoke with people, you know, at the risk of sounding dreadfully pompous, on, on the Clapham omnibus or elsewhere, I thought their lives aren't being particularly, you know, enriched by the EU. There's this little community that's doing very well. I'm from the north of England. And when I went back and spoke to, to, to schoolmates, there was increasingly this sense of, well, you in London, you know, right. you in the city, and you're not part of us. And, and part of my, my Brexitiness was a, a, a really an attempt to, to arrest that drift and that separation of, of an elite from the rest of the population. And I'm, I'm not talking about you know, anarchists or communists. These are schoolmates sure. who've got their own oh, business. My, you're preaching to the choir here. I, I know that it was fascinating for me, having, having spent a lot of my life in the UK, speaking yeah. with a lot of friends, most of whom work in the city. Um, mm -hmm. But 
what was I found so fascinating was that it was kind of like being in New York when you knew you were going to vote for Trump because you'd rather gouge your eyeballs out with a spoon than vote for Hillary. But why say it? Right. What's the point? Why say it? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And so I knew lots of folks in the city, many of whom with rural roots. Good friend of mine has as a uh, comes from a family of farmers about an hour mm-hmm. and a half outside uh, the city. And you get him started on Brexit and Brussels and the fact that some micromanaging bureaucrat was telling him how wide his hedgerows had to be. Oh, he lost his mind, right? So, so you know, bureaucracies, you can guarantee they will always overreach, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a bureaucrat in the world that will, that will look at all the rules promulgated and all of the, the policies being implemented and said, whew, that's great, we're done. We've issued every rule. We've made every 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 mandate we can. Oh, time for a nap. They don't do that, and they should because if you've got if you're smart enough to get a bureaucratic sinecure in a in a department that had nothing more to do, you could sit around and drink and play whist for your entire career and retire handsomely, and the population would thank you for it. Yes, <laughs> but instead yes. they overreach and they irritated a lot of people. They didn't need to irritate the sparrow yes. ratio to kite ratio in Northumberland has nothing to do with Brussels bureaucrats and they refuse to admit that. Exactly, because there's this kind of, I mean, may, um, this is only a half-baked notion, but maybe in a world in which we're, we're, we're less faithful in a religious sense, the state kind of represents a lot of our kind of, uh, our kind of base in, in those terms and people yes. feel that they're fulfilling a higher duty. Um, I mean, I look at it, you know, much as I, I, I quite like a lot that Boris does, um, I, I, I look at a, a conversation in UK conservative circles, which is that you know people who call themselves one nation conservatives and who, who feel that they've inherited the, the mantle of Disraeli and people like Disraeli really want to, and, and I mean, it's, it's a classic thing, a good politician wants to do good with somebody else's money. A bureaucrat wants to enforce good you know, outcomes with somebody else's authority. And that's just, you know, by and large, they just screw up people's lives. Um, and, and the world would be better. That would they, be the definition of a bureaucrat. Hi, I'm from yeah. the government. I'm here to help you. Yeah, exactly. But when people like me sort of advance a different notion, there's that whole presumption that somehow we begin from an evil point because we want to sort of qualify or restrict the state. Um, I don't. I think people will do a lot better. I mean, yeah, there, there is a need for a state. I'm not. I'm, I'm, yeah, I don't share my mother's anarchism right the way through. Um, you know, we, we do need an armed force. We do need a police force. Someone's got to pick up the trash. And that was the major yeah. error that the West made in Algeria when the French finally yeah. left in the 80s and they had elections. And they elected the Islamist party. And the stupidest thing the West ever did, I would argue, broadly speaking, was to disallow that election. Biggest mistake ever. If you're a, if you're a romantic figure with a Quran and a Kalashnikov in the hills, pointing to the fact that the West doesn't really like democracy, they like their elected officials, you should have made those guys pick up the trash on time. They would yeah. rapidly have stopped being romantic figures. <laughs> and they yeah. would have been just yeah. a guy that's not getting it done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's not easy to deliver services. And again, that overreach you talked about previously, you know, it's not just what, what they want to try and enforce in regulatory terms, but the state doesn't deliver massively well. Yeah, okay, there are some things only a state can do, but but you know, when it goes beyond its core services, and yeah, absolutely, I mean some of the stuff going on in the in, in the states at the moment, yeah, kind of defunding a whole police department does worry me. But yeah, you know, essentially. People should you know, just get on with what they can do effectively um, and then do it, not, not turn a blind eye to gangsters. a fascinating dynamic here. 
it's insane. I mean, I, I don't know how quickly actually the people, the, 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 I have great faith in kind of everybody, right? Like mm -hmm. not in sort of some romantic thing where a politician occasionally refers to the common mm -hmm. man, which usually means somebody he doesn't respect, but he wants his vote. Mm -hmm. um, I'm madness. You know, I've, I've done business all over this country and I've got friends who are, you know, just recently in Dallas and the guy tried to, well, Florida, he tried to go to his favorite watch store, which he hasn't been to in two years because of all this mm -hmm. Wuhan nonsense. Um, and when he gets there, you know, we in Florida dress in flip-flops and shorts all the time, right? It takes a while. Not a really formal bunch because it's really hot here. Uh, they wouldn't let him in the store because he, he looked, first off, he, he was wearing like polo shirt and shorts. And crime has gotten so dangerous in Dallas. This is in Texas. We're not even talking about Portland where they, they defunded the police. Yeah. Where they're now, you're only allowed to, you can only go to things like high-end jewelry stores by calling and making an appointment. And if they don't know you, they might not make the appointment in the first place. Like all of that day-to-day -day insanity, which the American yeah. media refuses to cover, just refuses to yeah. cover because that's clashes with their fantasy of the Biden unity government. Well, yeah. you know, I, I call them the Biden unity government because Biden is unifying people in their hatred of this moron. But yeah, the, the country's decaying because of, incremental steps like that and here in the last free state in america florida um everything's just fine things work normally and you know it's working normally because the national media screams about how awful we are and how evil desantis is yeah 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 because they're stirred up to do so but i mean again it goes right back to that early stuff you know i think the city of london prospered because people felt safe here right and if people fundamentally feel safe on their streets then you've got a whole world of problems coming coming at you. And um, I don't know how you, you solve them because once, well, uh, you know, Guildhall, which is the center of city government, I mean, that was that was a ruin for about 300 years. There was grass growing in our yard um, before you know, King Alfred and, and others you know, rebuilt our fortunes. But, you know, it's really, civilization can hang on a thread. And yet we've got so many blessings. We've got so much... You know, and and you know, it's kind of implicit in your title, but you know these are messy times. Very. They've been messy right through history, but all you need is a bit of resolution and a bit of effectiveness and a bit of kind of chutzpah to get on with them. And I, I just don't know quite why we don't see that. No, it, it, it's it's fascinating because you're in the thick of it constantly as a politician. You have to be persuading people. Now, your natural mm -hmm. constituency in the square mile, arguably, is kind of rational with you in terms of you know they they. they they need to think about these issues constantly mm -hmm. because it often impacts, you know, how we make a living. Um, mm -hmm. And so you know, switching, well, slightly switching gears, I've been, uh, uh, because I've been involved so heavily in Greenland mining uh, mm -hmm. for so long, you know, I've got a direct experience of dealing with the Chinese mm -hmm. communists uh, and they're, they're absolutely awful. And, and mm -hmm. you know, in terms of how they approach the world, um, you know, I think my knees are not broken only because I'm an American and I'm not visiting mainland China ever, right? If mm -hmm. I were if I were a Congolese and I were arguing about a, uh, a mine in Congo, um, I'd probably disappear. But luckily, yeah. I'm an American living in America uh, trying to support a Greenland mine. Um, and so, you know, seeing how their, their kind of brass knuckle approach to mercantilist <laughs> policies has gone on you know what what if anything are the direct effects you've seen in terms of the city and how you know you've had to accommodate or fight back against that influence 
Yeah, I mean, my push on this has really been just over a year. I mean, I've uh, long had concerns. So when the you know, Chinaman Square sort of protests were suppressed, I was a student, I ran some activities then. I, I had the, the great pleasure of standing on a stage with Alex Salmon, the former leader of the Scottish National Party. Uh, That's great. Uh, a wonderful ball, though, yes. Uh, I don't share his other views. But yeah, I, I did engage then, and I've, I've done a bit over time. But but really, it was um, as the you know, the PRC government was bringing in the national security law on Hong Kong, I, I, you know, I felt a bit concerned about how that was going to play out. Mm. Um, I wasn't sure quite what the city of London locus would be, but I spoke with a very good friend and a good colleague of mine who's, yeah, I'm an idealist. I'm not an intellectual, and I'm, I, I'm not kind of very practical. But one of my colleagues is a guy called Andy Mayer. And Andy is, is all of those things. He's practical and he's, he's deeply intelligent. So I spoke with Andy and asked him, what, what could we do to express some concern about this? And he drafted a motion. And essentially that motion was pretty mild and moderate. And what it said was, if any Hong Kong residents, and particularly any, any who hold British passports, feel uncomfortable about the national security law and the suppression of liberty in Hong Kong, we in the city of London will welcome them. They're our sister city, after all. Right. Um, and yeah, I thought, well, okay, yeah, that might ruffle a few feathers, but but it's pretty, you know, it's difficult to challenge that. Well, I didn't really reckon on, on how that would be received with the Chinese embassy. So um, we were asked to reconsider putting that motion. There was a little dance around the timings of it, which um, meant that we put it in September last year. I don't believe it was expected to pass, but it did because, frankly, you know, it, it, it's not um, it's not easy to argue for repression. Uh, the Chinese embassy went completely bananas, verbally on it afterwards. Right. And I'm paraphrasing. I mean, I, I read the um, press release a couple of times, but it's probably on the net if you want to look. Sort of, you know, September 2020. Um, but they basically called the Corporation of London childish. They told us to come to our senses, to, to understand how significant they are to us. And, and all of that I did get, you know, when I moved the motion, I was a bit concerned because, you know, there's a lot of renminbi trading that happens in London. Sure. And they are partners on green finance bonds and, and clean tech uh, initiatives. And I, I get that. But to some extent, we've got this policy framework, you know, forgive me, most of your, your viewers will understand ESG, environmental, social, and governance. So right. environmental, exactly what it says on the tin, it, it's the planet. Social is human rights and labor practices and governance is kind of intellectual property and board matters. And yet they, they were yoked together by the United Nations nearly 20 years ago. We as a corporation signed up to the United Nations PRI, the Principles for Responsible Investment a few years ago. So we're kind of committed to this, but we've long been supporters of ESG generally. And I think globally about a third of investments are, are under an ESG framework now. And we want the city of London to be kind of an exemplar. So where, where am I going with that? But I mean, I, I think the human rights bit of that gives us some locus on, on Hong Kong anyway. But I was a little concerned about how it would play out in, in interest terms. I don't think it's been particularly damaging. Um, Although the, you know, the Chinese embassy went really over the top after the vote happened. Of course, well, they're the, playing to their domestic audience that needs to defend yes. the pride of the Middle Kingdom against the, yeah. the foreigners. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, exactly. Well, this year we decided to sort of go a little bit further and kind of tweak the tail of um, the wolf, I suppose, as President Xi would call himself, um, a little bit more. So with the treatment of the Uyghurs, I felt, you know, as they've really ratcheted down on those, you know, 
poor people, wretched. Millions people. of imprisoned Muslims, beards shorn off, mm. demanding they absorb Marxist mm. atheist principles. Uh, and and the American predominantly, well, certainly American Democrat Party and ninety percent of our media just sit there and go la 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 la. You know, they don't want to hear yeah. about it because they like their cheap cell phones. No, no, exactly. I want it's nearly yeah, as you say, it's nearly two million people locked up in in, in slave labor camps essentially. And 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 you know that treatment kind of gets me a bit concerned, especially given our, our ESG framing. But then at the same time, it might violate one of those. Maybe the S and the G. (laughs) Just just, just, just possibly modern slavery is, it's it's potentially a bit questionable. So, so we should be in a panel. We need a working group to to, to think about that, to see whether (laughs) millions of people up there for their religion violates uh, social or governance. But anyway, we'll get to that. But but no, you you jest. I mean, that's actually one one of the lines, and there are a few, you know. One is we condemn human rights abuses wherever they are in the world, but it would be invidious to name individuals. Well, you know why that is. Um, and another is we've got clear standards on, on the environmental. Let's shape some, some consensual and agreeable standards. Well, well, if the People's Republic of China under President Xi agrees that you know, the treatment of, of the Uyghurs is, is slavery, I'll, I'll eat my hat. Um, I mean, it is, but they're not going to commit to that. So we don't need to map around trying to get everybody to subscribe to, to a nonsense. Um, we've got to take some action. But, but the reason, I mean, the other instigation was over the last year or so, we've been debating the city's historic links to slavery. And, and in many ways, we've been looking at that because you know, we used to get rich on slavery in the Caribbean, essentially. Um, and, you know, it was pretty deplorable stuff. But at the common council meeting, the meet, which is the council meeting of the corporation back in October, we had a big statement on that, you know, really clear about how much we condemned historic slavery. And I just thought, well, that's the moment we've got to push the fact that, you know, you know what we condemn it. Why don't we condemn that too? We can actually do something about that. <laughs> exactly. Change history. Well, well, exactly. What we condemn in the past, let's condemn in the present. Um, now, I've, I've got to say, I didn't really carry um, the, the, the whole council. We had essentially, it's, it's a bit more complicated than the motion fell. It got amended out of all shape, essentially. Um, but yeah. We, we, we had a 23-53 vote on that with a lot of members sitting on their hands. And I, you know, I, I think essentially they sat on their hands because they felt really uncomfortable. They've been told jobs are at stake in the city of London. They've right. been told our financial interests require you know, essentially turning a blind eye to this. And they don't feel comfortable really going either way on an emotion like that. Um, but I think ultimately we are going to be put in the spotlight just as much, yeah, the matters that happen. 100 years ago, we've got to face right now. Um, and anyway, the Chinese government, if we talk about the classic political sort of separation of values and interests, you know, it, what, what is going on from the PRC is not, it's totally against our value space, the value space that has got us prosperous. Right. And it's not even good for our national interests. I'm not actually sure it's, it's good for our financial services interests because, yeah. you know, you you it's might know. I mean, I was I was running a, a futures commission merchant in London, in the city, um, during a time when there was a, a Chinese trading house where the guy who had been around forever. This is this it was beyond Orwellian. It was insanity. He managed to rack up losses of around two billion pounds on futures contracts in metal trading, and uh-huh. then when the exchange tried to call the money in from the Chinese trading house, the offices disappeared. The guy, yeah, yeah. the trader disappeared. It wasn't like he's been fired. They just disavowed the fact that he ever existed. And the official Chinese government line was, 
Well, if you've been allowing yourselves to be duped by a fraudster, that's not our problem. We have no idea who this person is. It was insanity. They tried to walk away from $2 billion in losses, which were gains for someone else, by claiming he just didn't exist. It was one of the worst things I've ever seen. Well, absolutely. And this, this that goes right to the heart of things, because I, I know we can get misty eyed about my word as my bond and all of that stuff. But 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 it had some value. And I was a very good friend. She's academic. She's really connected to the um, the Chinese embassy. Um, she spent a, a number of years in the States and then arrived in the UK three years ago, um, invited me to listen to Jean-Pierre Raffarin, the former French prime minister, talk to kind of a select British audience just before COVID. Um, and you know, what she was trying to do was a, a bit of gentle re-education with me, because Raffarin is a strong sinophile in, in terms of a strong President Xi file, essentially. Right. Um, and he basically said, you know, you s- sentimental Anglo-Saxons have got to get over your attachment to these you know, funny values. Uh, and he, he highlighted contract. He said, because, you know, let's face facts. And I do get where he's coming from in part. He said, contract is a, re- a reflection of a balance of power between two parties at a particular moment in time struck on paper um, and he said when you deal with the Chinese uh, government and business you know it's not going to be dependable because as the balance of power changes they will renegotiate and they will slip oh, out absolutely. their signature on a piece of paper is meaningless yeah exactly and, and and you know I took that back when we were pressing the Hong Kong motion when people were gently trying to twist my arm and one very eminent former Lord Mayor who I won't name for 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 obvious reasons, sort of said to me, well, yeah, let's face it, they're, they're right, contract doesn't really matter that much. Um, and whilst understanding the kind of the point he's trying to make in, in one respect, I think that's very dangerous for people in the city of London to concede either privately or publicly, because those are the values that, that got our market to be prosperous. Because the only it goes, way a market can work. If people suddenly well, yeah, decide, exactly. ah, when the trade goes against me, I'm not going to pay. That or everything grinds to a halt because you have no faithfulness that the market can work, that you can buy or sell and believe yeah. you're going to get what you bought or sold. Oh, absolutely. It's hard. Yeah. And, when, and when ultimately, however you dress it up, the, the, the counterpart is the Chinese government with Always. all of it. Great. You're going to have real problems. Um, and yeah, the, you know, I talk about the significance of the city of London, but we're kind of like this gnat uh, when we're dealing with that. But yeah, there are operations in the UK and elsewhere, the United Front, the Confucius Institutes, that have got great depth of support. And these operations essentially spin and and promote, uh, particularly President Xi's version of of, of the CCP and of the People's Republic of China. And I don't think the UK, well, wider public, or indeed the UK intelligentsia or our commercial circles or our political circles are really properly awake to that, that that activity um, yet they, they are paying no attention at all and usually and i give them huge credit a lot of like the confucius institutes a lot of them are dressed up in excellent cultural trappings from a cultural mm. perspective um yeah deep mm. rich history brilliant beautiful stuff thank you for good mm. powder good stuff um and a, a lot of all of that history is 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 very worth transmitting mm. and that's all that's all phenomenal i mean uh, uh, two of the two good friends of mine grew up in beijing Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, um, I'll be careful here since they live in China. Um, one of them, especially, uh, he was a child of academics. They were teachers mm-hmm. and, and professors at Beijing University during Mao. And they mm-hmm. were sent off to the May 4th farms to you know, get themselves educated in the ways of the peasantry. How dare you be an uppity intellectual, all this great stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the beautiful parts about communism is their capacity to mismanage uh, is bottomless. Mm-hmm. 
And so during the, the tragedies of the millions of people that starved to death, um, they were all in the cities. So the intellectuals were sent out to the May 4th farm as well. It was a bummer because you went from being a professor of you know, literature to being a farmer, but you ate and you didn't die. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's been fascinating to hear him and other people like him who are, uh, what's that, that great line? Was it, um, was it Twain? And, you know, patriotism is, is mm-hmm. loving your country always and your government sometimes, right? Yeah. So yeah. from his standpoint, he's proud to be Chinese. His, his family is still there. He hasn't left. Um, his, his thoughts on the Chinese Communist Party are a different issue. Um, and you just got to wonder, like, is there a path forward for the country where you know, another good friend who lived there said, you know, they, everyone wonders in the West why they squashed down on Falun Gong so badly. And the answer, of course, is that every time a Chinese government's been overthrown, it started as a spiritual movement in the rural provinces. So they don't yes. see people who are humming quietly, peacefully. They see an overthrow of the Communist Party in following. Yeah. yeah, and they've got that fear about kind of the balance of the centrifugal and the centripetal forces and, and, and anarchy, but not my mum's kind of fuzzy poetic anarchy, but yeah. real. Real crazy, violent, violent anarchy, everyone for themselves, people dying in the streets, murdering for bread. Yeah, not fun yeah. stuff. You need a government. No, no. No, and it, it really has happened. Um, so, yeah, I, I do get that. I mean, there are two Chinese thinkers, and I, I don't know either of them, but one, Chai Zia, and, and Chai, Chai Zia, I think, is living in the States now because she was a, an intellectual and an academic, and she was promoting a more liberal version of kind of how the, the, the CCP could go forward. Sure. And um, now, and, a lot of them flourished in China. There was room for a lot well, of that yeah. discussion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then... There is a guy, I mean, and you'll be familiar with him, but I think Wang Hanay, um, he was, again, he was in that kind of broad, you know, with a small L kind of liberal movement. But, but again, it goes right back to us, I suppose. He came over in, or went over to the States, I think, for a year in, in, in the 80s. And he went back basically convinced that we, we've lost our way. And right. therefore, what previously attracted him appalled him. And he's gone back with his whole. He's family. not alone in that. <laughs> no, no, exactly. That, that's where I think he's got a point because you know, if if what what I think we have is really just a crisis of confidence. It's emotional. We're over. You know, we're almost living in paradise and thinking we live in hell, um, and we're not you know facing the issues at the moment with a bit of confidence. Yeah, you know, attending to it kind of intellectually, but 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 you know practically at the same time, we're running around flapping. It's guilt, it's grievance, and I and, and to some extent, even back in the eighties, that whole kind of giddiness was probably the first symptom of an irrationality. Um, you know, I've always thought the Enlightenment wasn't necessarily quite delivering on on its promise, but um, <laughs> well, but, but considering the flakes who underpinned it, it was hard to see it was going to be a successful social program. Well, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, particularly the French guys there, but um, yeah, but. but where I think we've got an issue is, you know, some of the, the values I, I kind of get misty eyed about, you know, the, the liberal values, essentially, to some degree. And, and some of them are products of the Enlightenment. Some of them were kind of the things that produced that would the be the British large L liberal, not the American yeah. flaky, whiny victim. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. <laughs> well, I'm for our like, listeners, we've got, the, we've got the right liberal here. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no, trust <laughs> not me. Not the whiny woke here. brats. No, no, I might be very distantly related to FDR, but I, I, I kind of nod of his, uh, his world views. Um, Look, even the socialist in a wheelchair thought that public sector union shouldn't be allowed. So I give credit where credit is due. He made a lot of big mistakes, but at least he had that right. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He, he did some good stuff. But, but where I think we, we have to bear in mind, um, Chinese thought might rest. Those values have not necessarily ever been proven in China. Right. Um, 
or not successfully over a long period of time. Um, and there is that fear that things could go really out of control. Um, and then they look at us and they think, well, what are those values demonstrating for the West? Because look, look yeah, they're, they're quite messed up. Um, and and, and they, you know, they must think we're stupid in how we engage, you know, looking at our strategic positions geopolitically are, are kind of the, the, the cornerstones of our, of our economy and our, our value space. I mean, I might not have this precise, but you know, Manchester University you know, was one of the leading places for graphene technology. And do, do take this one with a pinch of salt. I, I didn't reread this news no. article. But yeah, we invited over a bright young Chinese student to sort of yeah, to work on some cutting edge and really sensitive activities. Yeah, he went back to China. It turns out he was right the way through, he was a lieutenant in, in the Chinese yeah, forces. He took it all, took all the intellectual property, gone. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, when we behave without intelligence, we can't command respect. Um, and I think, you know, that bit of Wang Huning's analysis, we've really got to recognize has some truth. Um, and then we've just got to get basically, we've got to get, I think a little bit more kind of focused, if that makes well, sense. Well, it's, it's also, because I do a huge amount of work in cybersecurity and national defense over the years. And, mm. one of the, and some of it's just so obvious it hurts, right? Mm. Um, as, as relayed to me by a retired uh, uh, Admiral who had, who had dealt with his Chinese counterparts a lot uh, prior to Xi coming in. So she really changed world in terms of he, he, a historically he has decided that i'm going to be the first guy ever who is mm -hmm. going to successfully control a population by ratcheting down the screws harder i don't know why right it, it, well again it's not my problem it's his problem and the chinese and actually it's all our problems but um that 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 admiral i spoke to his he conveyed that he, speaking to his counterpart his counterpart's thought was you all moan and cry that we steal your intellectual property if you don't want us to have it, why is it available on the internet, right? Yeah. So irrespective of the fact that it's on a network so that people with passwords and authorization, to his mind, rationally enough, if you've got enough brute force computer power, there is no such thing as password protection. There is no cybersecurity. So yeah. if you don't want your valuable IP, like missile systems diagrams to be stolen, why don't you, I don't know, not connected to the internet? And it was such a, a clear and obvious statement. His point of view was, you must not be serious about protecting this if my lieutenant could sit in a cubicle in Beijing from, from nine to five <laughs> and steal it, right? You know, I, 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 when I, give, I used to give a lot of talks on cybersecurity and cyber insurance. And I always opened up with, you know, who can tell me what the, what the most important part about you know stealing trade secrets during you know, the Mission Impossible series, you know the fun ones where they smoke cigarettes and wore bell bottoms, not the Scientology remake, right? And the whole point was you had to physically break into a place to get to the computer, right? Yeah. Once you made it easy to access from anywhere, including from countries where it's computer crime is not a crime, right? So you've got Americans yeah. who are playing defense constantly, and Europeans. We're paying cyber defense constantly. The simplest answer is air gap your important data. Don't yeah, put yeah. it on the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So but they can't steal it without breaking into your headquarters. And how no, no. we've managed to completely still miss this hurts my head. I know. I know. I, I mean, the ineptitude of the West is is just writ large, and I I I, I don't know why people don't think more deeply about those sort of things. And then there are bright people here there are plenty who do but again this is the weakness of democracy right 
unfortunately, seven idiots can rule six wise people. And when it, you know, I, I ask people constantly, what do you think of the OPM breach, Americans? Mm-hmm. These are all people from all walks of life, right? 99% of people I ask that look at me blankly. And when I tell them the OPM breach was a greater danger to national security than Pearl Harbor was, they look at me totally blankly. The Chinese or the Russians or whoever it was stole complete Mm -hmm. records of everybody who ever applied for a national security clearance of any kind. Millions of people in America. Data's gone. And 99% of Americans don't even know what happened. And when you tell them, they kind of go, oh. And that's that's the danger of intellectual property theft. It doesn't have the drama of a building collapsing, which sears itself into your memory. It's abstract. And so no one pays any attention. But again, that's another feature of our age. We, we kind of have that hyper emotional quality, but also we need that kind of dramatic visual thing for things to register. I mean, what I feel, I, might, I hope this isn't just an excessive gloom, but you know, when, when I talk with people about the Uyghurs and stuff like that, it, it registers for about 30 seconds. Um, and then they go and grab their Starbucks coffee and, and the, they're on the device and they're seeing whatever Boris has said. They don't care very deeply. Um, unless it really shocks them, unless something kind of hits that kind of public consciousness. And, and yeah, our threats aren't always apparent um, in that sense, but they, they really are yeah, things we've got to face. Um, but we have the resources to do so. I mean, we are still, you know, if you put the Anglosphere together, if you put you know, uh, other Western democracies or indeed you know, regional ones, India and, and, and Singapore, if you call Singapore a democracy, but you know, there are, there are people it's a very would... neat orderly democracy in which you're allowed to vote in certain ways <laughs> yeah exactly exactly well i mean um i've got to be a bit careful because the franchise in the city is a little bit interesting but m- much as i i value my, my a sterling uh, success in my, in my mind they managed to balance public order with incredible economic growth you, yeah. you give up a few personal freedoms yeah do i really need to chew gum in public i mean that was that was the formal leader's big bugaboo right he cared about that deeply um <laughs> But I wonder, like, is there a way to is there a way to rally around yeah. uh, and, and, and logically defeat an enemy that operates in ways that most people don't see? They don't see the direct impacts of their lives. It's very difficult to rally support for an abstract geopolitical fight that one side has got all the patience and time in the world yeah. and the other side doesn't even know what's happening. Well, there are two things I would say, Make, yeah. just beginning with the kind of the Chinese side. And there are people, there are three sets of people I want to kind of you know, raise a flag for right now. Hong Kong Watch, in the, these are all UK based. Ben Rogers and his team are doing wonderful work in kind of yeah, research, identifying what's going on and, and bringing it to public consciousness, not just about Hong Kong, but, but more widely. Sure. Baron- Morrissey um, and Helena Morrissey used to run a fund management business over here, but she's now the chair of the NEDS at the Foreign Office. She's a very vigorous you know, challenger of the kind of the PRC activities over here. And then thirdly, you know, he, he's a bit kind of lower profile, but there's a guy called Sam Olson who has a weekly blog called What China Wants. And Sam is a moderate, you know, he's a measured commentator. He does a lot of analysis and he puts out pieces every every week or so on, on the internet. So what, what China Wants um, Sam Olson, I, I'd strongly recommend. So I think, first of all, we've got to kind of identify what's going on. And it's people like that that help do that. 
then I, I, I think, and I'm part of a little group that's coming together. Um, we haven't yet launched, but we will be doing this month. And what we're going to try and do is partially shine a light on the Confucius Institute, shine a light on the United Front activities in the UK, but also demonstrate how those are prejudicial to our interest. Now, we are not going to be, I, I'm, I'm really mindful of this, we're not going to be grabbing the, you know, the headlines on the BBC News. We're, we're not going to get there very quickly. Deadly. But but what we can kind of well, just... Now with your appearance the... in Messy Times, it's going to skyrocket right to the top of popular attention. <laughs> well, so you're that. welcome. <laughs> you, 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 Let this be your you, coming you know, out party. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd be delighted if it's like Britain's got kind of anti-PRC talent or, 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 or the X Factor. But, but you know, I, I don't think we're going to get quite there. But but what we've just got to do is kind of be patient, as you say. We're up against a really powerful adversary but in terms of advantage, you know, the two things about China that I've mentioned, one is you know, when anyone calls himself president for life, in, in some sense, that sounds like a big, bold statement. But there's an element of Wizard of Oz about it. You know, if you if you're really safe, why do you need to have the title? You know, right. um, you know, it, there's an element of insecurity in grabbing and promoting that. And a lot of pres President Xi's stuff, I know he's got resources behind it, but he still doesn't dominate the West militarily. Or economically, um, Ryan so hard to get there. It. No, no, there's the oh, yo, he's moving fast. He's moving hard to get there. Yeah, exactly. He is moving fast, I, I, and I, I think that's why this is perhaps an unstable moment because he might do something rash with Taiwan. Um, but you know, he's he's not there yet. He's still you know, kind of a notch down. And also, you know, they they have an aging population. Um, I mean, we do in in Europe. I get that, but there are issues demographically in China. And then that kind of balance of centrifugal and centripetal forces. The more he, he slams in a state, the more he has a kind of an anti-corruption drive that's partial. It doesn't affect his people, but does affect others in the party. The more he kind of just chips away a little at his base and he will look. I mean, it's like any dictator. It's like any tyrant. It's like any regime. That one will look really strong until it suddenly until it doesn't, doesn't. Look really strong. Yeah, exactly. And, that's, and then, what found, that's what I found so disheartening about Xi from the beginning, right? Again, he's he's he he comes from his own place. He, he's he's mm. one of the first leaders that has not been his eschews international travel, doesn't bother to speak any of the languages. Like he's and he's got a strong vision of yeah. his country being returned to its preeminent place in the universe, right? Mm -hmm. That's his vision. But what hurts my head so badly, not just him. But so many people like him, whether in the West and elsewhere, or like, wouldn't you rather be mm -hmm. the beloved figure who retires after a while and gets rich on speaking tours in a free society, rather mm -hmm. than literally worrying about how many people mm -hmm. want to shoot you on a daily yep. basis? Like, I don't understand the attraction, right? He, he inherited a country that was growing at 10 to 12 percent per year, although mm -hmm. we always talk about the Chinese statistics, it'll roll the random number generator, right? What sounds good. Um, but there was no doubt there was growth <laughs> happening. And it has been proven that centrally planned economies always do more poorly as they're seeing now, right? The zombie yeah. bank phenomenon in Japan that went on for 20 is still continuing now. The problem they're having with, uh, you know, commercial loans that have gone bad in China, they can't admit, right? So you're, you're already living the experiences of the downside <laughs> to central planning. <laughs> Wouldn't you at that point in time, like, Take a deep breather, get out a get out a book of Milton Friedman, translate it into Mandarin, yeah. and relax a little bit. Like you, it would seem to be the best period in time 
to become the leader of China. And instead, he went back on this Black Mirror Orwellian social you know, credit system, and I'm going to watch everybody do everything all the time. Who could care? That's what I found so baffling. Like you, you were given the keys to a joyous kingdom, and all you do is now the world is focused on your oppressive maniac. They're worried about the Uyghurs. You've got people fighting you, your mercantilist interests. Every Chinese company I deal with personally, great, hardworking folks, fantastic, yeah. right? But like. Why, why choose this insane path? And maybe we'll never know. But well, yeah, I mean, like, it gives like me hope. Said, I guess it gives me hope that, as you point out, to authoritarian regimes are an iron fist until the fist shatters, right? Hopefully, it shatters smoothly without huge amounts of tumult, and the country continues to grow with a better path. I mean, it's a naive hope, perhaps, but I don't know. Well, my, my well that. Hope. that that as much as anything else is my fear. I mean, there is a book, I, again, I should have kind of looked it up before we talk, but I think it's called Autumn Leaves. You know, it's a big, hefty kind of narrative history that I read a few years ago. And it's really about the typing rebellion, although it says it wasn't really a rebellion. Again, you know, your point, you know, religious root to that and then how it's sure. sort of washed blood. Um, and, you know, pe pe people that I know who are mainland Chinese as well, well as uh, others, now, I mentioned that academic who came over from the States. They are, as you say, they're, they're universally lovely people and they're bright, hardworking, industrious, intelligent. You know, there's kind of a lot of stuff there to, to like on an individual basis. I don't want to see people like them live through chaos and bloodshed. But it's that overreach of any government complicated by this kind of insecure desire to do everything so quickly, so, so, so authoritatively. Um, when, yeah, okay, it is local politics, but when we started earlier, what makes the city great isn't our, you know, our direct authority, it's our influence. Right. And why don't more politicians just want to be influential figures rather than kind of achieve an office? And then, well, what's that all about? What's your purpose in office? I mean, Pope Chi's purpose seems to be the kind of the, the recreation of the grand middle kingdom, as you say. I mean, that, that kind of I get, but if it depends on an apparatus of, but he's doing so yeah. and, and clearly with a vision that that is that doing so is a zero sum game. You win, you have to lose, and that doesn't have to. That doesn't. Well, the entire history of economic development and capitalism mm -hmm. shows that's not true. Right? You grow the mm -hmm. pie, and everybody wins. He's got yeah. a very zero sum game vision of the world, which is detrimental ultimately, not just to kind of the market, but to the Chinese themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a mercantilist approach. I mean, it's that kind of, you know, the cake is there, we're going to carve it up. Um, and it's, yeah, well, I suppose that's the thing. I mean, governments aren't enterprising, you know, if we were. Maybe uh, maybe there's an argument for drafting in Bill Gates. Um, Steve Jobs is too, too, too long gone, I guess. But um, <laughs> but and, uh, to be fair, one of the things, nothing, no system is perfect and no system, no system is perfect, right? And so... Um, one of the things I've been heavily involved with for years is this whole critical minerals, rare earth supply chain. Um, you know, I had the, the, the delight of being in the White House a few days before Trump offered to buy Greenland, explaining the importance of our rare earth mine in Greenland. So I get the credit for that. Um, but the um, but but what the Chinese have done right, for example, I'm not going to name names. People go research this on their own, but uh, comparable to what we are doing in in rare earth mining and trading. Um, a, a, an American, and I'm not going to name names, an American who I know very well, um, spent seven years, seven years or so, trolling around America 
asking people to invest in building big battery factories, right? He thought this mm -hmm. was coming. So it wasn't Elon, right? But this is before this, this is in the, in the 90s or 2000s. Um, he couldn't get any anyone, right? And this, this guy wasn't like a 23-year-old kid with an idea. His name is on dozens of patents in the space. He knows this space, right? It's like Bono and, and Paul McCartney showing up to record executives saying, I've got an idea for a concept album, right? You fund it. Um, but but he got no interest because the amounts of money were huge. It was in the billions of dollars, right? And everyone, too many Americans, certainly business school students, did their MBA studying supply chains. And it's better to do things more efficiently overseas. No one invested. Uh, very frustrating, right? He really thought this is a competitive advantage. We needed to just begin to focus on building mm. battery factories here in America again. Nope, no one wanted to do it. He got a call in the middle of the night, as he relates, on his cell phone from a guy in China who said, hi, I've read all of your confidential materials. <laughs> of course he has, right? They've hacked his system. You don't want it to be available. Why did you send it over email? Right, so they've got everything, yeah. all of his plans. And he said, I will fund, I will build what you want, but you have to build it here. And the Americans said, how much money is available? And he said, unlimited. Yeah. That company now controls... 60% of the battery market in the world. It was founded less than 10 years ago, right? And they are, I know them, they're great people. They're hardworking, they're focused on what they do. But the problem in the West was with yeah. all this capital sitting in yeah. pension funds and endowments and all these places that all have these like weird restrictions. Well, I can't invest in something unless it's been invested in by someone else. And I can't put money in unless it's 30% or less. Like, all these insane restrictions meant that this guy wanted to build the industry of the future and now yeah, the chinese yeah, yeah. own it and i give the credit to the chinese for that that's not our fault they did the right thing we did the wrong thing and we're about to repeat it in other industries i'm seeing the exact same thing happen right now at least when it comes down to it they write the check yeah exactly i mean i think i, I touched on david epstein in Julia, but i mean it's kind of a, a popular book it's out there and and what i'm about to quote from epstein is, is a kind of a, a theme that's been around for longer but in the book, and he's got some lovely little kind of anecdotes and, and vignettes, he talks about the kind of the distinction between hedgehogs and foxes right. and the hedgehogs being the tight, linear technocrats and the foxes yeah. ranging widely. And what I think, you know, what I certainly see in political circles is that kind of siloing and, and you know, narrow base of political party, its loyalty, you know, its ambition, its, its ability, but its loyalty, first and foremost, don't rock sure. the boat. Yeah, it's there in business when you're looking at these kind of slightly risky, edgy ideas, lots of strategic potential, but oh, it's a bit easier to go with that decision. And I think we make a lot of bad decisions because we, we've kind of, or rather we avoid making decisions, which then other people make, right. because we're kind of, you know, it's our whole approach to risk. We've gone from being giddy about risk maybe three or four decades ago to being kind of completely obsessed with how things are going to go wrong um and it's evident with covid you know our approach oh, to, to craziness, craziness. first time in history we've ground entire economies to the halt because someone over 85 who smoked his or whole life might get a virus and die it's madness it's madness yeah. it's madness from day one well, exactly. I mean, I think there are things we can do to mitigate that. Now, I've been double jabbed. I've got no problem with that. But but I'm not having, well, I don't want my daughter to be jabbed because I, do, I think the risk reward is, is, is not in favor the risk of that. to children is infinitesimal. Statistically, in the United yeah. States, it is more dangerous for a child to ride in a car on a highway with their parents mm -hmm. than it is to get yeah. the virus. 
Exactly. But then, you know, that, as you say, that whole closing down of the economy, I mean, when, okay, we're only a local authority, so it wasn't a city of London conversation. I, I tend to, you know, my bias is I tend to think everything revolves around the city of London and everything revolves around my ward, which isn't the case. I, I get that. But you know, when we were getting, yeah, I know, I, I, I can but hope. But, you know, when we were getting public policy briefings, oh gosh, months and months ago, I can't even remember this one, but I did ask, because um, we're in a slice of London, about an eighth of London, I, I did ask um, whether the focus on COVID infections meant delayed um, consultations and delayed sort of treatments for other issues like cancer. It's that stuff that's How come out. How dare you it. ask that question? <laughs> oh, no, no. But yeah, well, exactly. But I mean, yeah, to be fair, the, 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 um, the official gave me an answer, which was they didn't believe there'd been any delays. And I just sort of said, well, that seems a bit surprising. And then I was assured that, you know, they would check and get back to me. This was kind of early in, in that kind of, right. kind of conversation. Of course, you know, I never got the information. Um, you know, I'm sure it was said in good faith, but then kind of in a public forum, the question is just kind of sat on. Um, and then later we're told we've got to follow the data. Well, what, what data? I mean, there are people's businesses failing. What does that lead to in terms of suicide? There are people not getting cancer treatments. But it's a bit like your point on, on, the, on the data penetration. It's not as obvious. The suicide that happens three years down the line. Right. The kid. The alcoholism is creeping up slowly and it's bolstering yeah. the local pub. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. All right. It's not even bolstering the pub. It's, it's bolstering the home delivery supermarket that's sending this poor guy yeah, yeah. The, the bubble wrap vodka and beer. Uh, and, and it's all of that stuff that it's a bit less obvious than the pandemic. It grabs right. attention. And you know, given that we're already halfway scared about the environment, about technology change, about you know, financial positions, carry out all of that, people just need that little tip to kind of hysteria. And, and, and they, it's a difficult thing to bring them back. Oh, it's turned out to be impossible. Um, we're not going to cover more of it because um, <laughs> I know and this is hilarious. I had we had a, a colleague of mine in New York I've worked with forever also in the, in the markets, much more sort of bought the New York line about mask mm -hmm. mandates and all that, fine, right? Um, so we had a debate about it. Mm -hmm. Racked up, I think, 40 views in two hours, and it was an hour and a half discussion, right? So in the mm -hmm. middle of the night, I wow. woke up to an email from YouTube telling me that I'd won the equivalent of a woke Pulitzer, that they had pulled it down because I was accused of spreading yeah. medical misinformation. And when I asked what medical misinformation, they came back with some bland nonsense about anything that contradicted local health authorities and the World Health Organization advice, which was really funny because as I wrote back, well, here in Florida, my state local health authority agrees with me that masks shouldn't be mandated. So what you're telling me is the Chinese Communist Party owned who is your standard of care in terms of Orwellian, right? Clearly, it's a 23-year-old kid in a cubicle in Cupertino who doesn't care and heard mask and his boss told him to delete it, but it's insanity. So we're not going to talk yeah. about more about that here because we'll, we'll be pulled. <laughs> but, but, but that kind of loops us back to Brexit where we began because right. yeah, my, my, my wife is Czech. Um, and you know, I'm the only person in my family, my, my daughter, my wife, yeah, all the Czech side and almost actually all, all the British side think I was completely bonkers in voting for Brexit. Um, right. My daughter is now in the house. She might well intrude at this moment with kind of a, 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 a grumpiness about her. But, but basically, my Czech mother-in-law had to concede that Brexit meant that we got our, our vaccination procurement better handled than, than the EU did because right. we were freer to act. 
Now, I mean, whichever way you go, I mean, I, I touched on I've been double jab, but um, but it's that kind of freedom and that liveness that occasionally you can see. Um, and that gives me some hope because I think it goes right back to the other stuff. Well, the stuff that, you know, that person in Cupertino tries to suppress, which is, you know, free speech, um, pr protection of contract, protection of life. All of those things ultimately give us that kind of herd intelligence. We might be hysterical at the moment, but once we calm down, once we're better led, um, I mean... Once we I, delete I, our Twitter account. Well, yeah, well, I'm afraid I've gone to all sorts of trouble with my Twitter account, but, but broadly speaking... <laughs> I got my, my... because I dared suggest there were two genders, but that's a topic for another day. <laughs> well, again, you know, to have an opinion, why should, they, you know, even if it's an opinion that someone else is going to debate, well, what will come out of that debate is a better basis. If people want safe spaces and all of that, you know, frankly, they should stay in a nursery. Um, right. because, because we just don't grow unless we're challenged. I mean, you talked about the... Um, I think elsewhere about the uh, no, about the uh, draft dodging generation. And how oh yeah, that meant they didn't go through a right the to worst. passage. It was it's so terrifyingly clear as an anthropologist. Like there are mm. social every society has gates mm. to adulthood, mm. and every single young man that dodged the draft mm. in Vietnam by by having daddy pay for it, a college and education and oh my lord. The war still going on. Well, I guess we're going to get a master's. What do you mean it's still going on? All right, I guess we're going to get a PhD. What we as a country did was create a generation of non-men in, in, in a cultural sense. They never they never took on adult responsibilities. They never faced up to being a man, right? Yeah. I, I kind of respect those people who said, I'm a conscientious objector. I'm not going. And they did jail time. You're a man. You, chose, you made a decision, right? But those who hit out on this idiotic idea of a draft deferment, because you're getting a PhD in idiot studies. I mean, bafflingly yeah. stupid uh, ramifications for this country that never ended. Uh, but that sort of path of illogic is kind of what yeah. has led us to here. Because those people have been indoctrinating 40 years of students in this Marxist yeah. brainwashing nonsense, which has led us here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, it, it's created so many problems because it kind of washes more widely. But yeah. My dad's generation, my dad was a glider pilot. You know, he didn't go to university. He he got up, he served in the army in the Second World War. Um, and, you know, it sounds a bit of a dull job, but glider pilots were pretty brave people because they were, were dealing with, well, they didn't have engines and they had people firing bullets at them. You're um, going where you're going. But, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, I, and I'm kind of delighted that I, I had a, a Pacific upbringing because my country wasn't at war. And I think I'd have been dead in two minutes because I'm this kind of annoying squid who would do something stupid and get shot. But which I, you know, I'm really glad that- I shouldn't I look above this parapet, are you sure? <laughs> but yeah, I want to see what's going on. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. Um, but, you know, <laughs> frankly, you know, if my nation was in need, I hope I'd have the courage to stand up and do my bit. Or, or as you say, my courage to face time in jail as a Face the consequences either way. And yeah, those, those draft dodgers never faced consequences. They never became adults. And they act no. like it. They vote like it. And I can't yeah, wait I mean, till they're all out of office in this country. They're the worst. Yeah. No one, no, I can't believe that people in their 70s and 80s are still yeah. running chunks of this government. It hurts my brain listening yeah. to Janet Yellen warble on about cryptocurrencies and the fact she wants to look at everyone's bank account. It's terrifying. She should be baking cookies for her great-grandchildren. She's had a wonderful mm -hmm. career, no problem. But at this point, we need mandatory retirement ages in this country. And if we need well, a constitutional like, amendment, so be it. It's a bit like your President G remark. I mean, essentially, there's a time for people to quit. I mean, yeah. um, 
Exactly. Go relax. You made a lot of money. Chill out. Watch the leaves. Watch the birds. Play with your grandchildren. Really. But but then then it creates this kind of distortion. I mean, one of my good friends, and I think the world of him, and he's in in cyber actually. Um, but he's ex special forces over here, a marine. You know, we go running together. A, he's younger than me, and B, he's a lot fitter than me. So so he's the one who can do most of the talking. <laughs> yeah. O- over the years, more. I mean, he he's a man who keeps discretion but of course you know when you know someone for a, few, for a few years i felt really uncomfortable because i realized a bit more about the stuff he went through in afghan and, and iraq and then you know totally because the city is what it is as we touched on earlier we hosted a service for the end of the afghan operation i think in 2014 it might have been 2015 I, I i can't quite remember but you know because i was one of the few members left around chatting with folks I got asked to step out onto a balcony and I thought it'd be to view something. Before I knew it, I was about one of 12 people taking the salute of the UK veterans as they were marching to a reception. And I cannot say how unworthy I felt that day because I looked at them, some of them limbless, um, and I thought, what have I done? But, but, but nothing that, compared to what these guys have done. And then I spoke with them at the end of that reception and some of their family as well. And it made me realize that these are quite tight communities. There were two mums talking whose sons had been at school together. They died within three weeks of each other, 17 years old. Now, I just thought, how kind of, you know, the stuff they're dealing with. And we've got to honor that by having a bit of resolution politically. And by, yes. by, by, by doing the right know, thing and, and building this country yeah. in the right way. Absolutely. Yeah. And yet I don't think we often do because... You know, going right back to the bubble, the people I walk with don't often meet those people. Um, and there's kind of almost, you know, when Disraeli talked about two nations, and, you know, I think one nation conservatives try to do good through the mechanisms of the state, and they do mean to, to do good. But a lot of it's actually the currents of emotion and engagement, because the palace isn't safe unless the cottage is safe. Um, right. But it's a, it's a bit about just knowing people and caring about them and trying to you know, make sure that there aren't obstacles to their success and that you honor their service when they serve um and i just don't think we as well in the uk have totally got it right and i think in the states something's gone wrong i mean i i look at reagan as uh, as a hero but but i just wish you had reagan coming again and i don't know if they came wrong and a lot of it comes down to human beings require a natural amount of of tension and stress hmm. to develop in the right way and it has become broadly speaking, the richest society the -hmm. world ever saw. Mm. You know, there there is no other culture, there's no other country that has an entire TV series called My 600-Pound Life, right? That should be, if it ever happens, an accident of freak freak medical problem, right? The fact that you could commit Mm. money to building a series with full confidence that there's going to be no shortage of human beings who weigh more than 600 pounds that you can follow around with a camera. That's I terrifying. I know. It's kind of, it's terrifying. a jab at the hut society. And, you know, what, what's happening to us? We're kind of, as you, you know, as you say, we're the, one of the richest societies. In, 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 well, we are the richest society. In people, the richest don't see, people don't see. The frog doesn't feel the water <laughs> boiling. Right. And the 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 hallmarks are there. The great thing I've been watching about our political process the last few few years is when people are surprised 
at what Barry Hussein Soratoro, latterly called himself Obama, did. I love when people criticize me for saying that. Like, that's what his name was. That's what he called himself. I'm not making anything up. Um, like, I don't know what you thought. He wasn't lying. He told you what he was going to do. You chose not to listen, right? Uh, and and Trump, God bless his weird socks, right? You know, he, had, he has kind of like tw- Twitter Tourette's. And a lot of his policy instincts were phenomenal. But the man couldn't stop doing insane things like getting into fights with gold star parents. But like, for example, Trump is the first president since, I think, Eisenhower that hasn't that didn't get us into a new foreign war and yeah. the first one in five that when the North Koreans threatened to bomb people he didn't give them American taxpayer money he told them he was going to nuke them instead now yeah. if I'd had the eloquence of Barry Hussein Sorotoro with the policy instincts yeah. of Donald Trump that would have been yeah. a great great homunculus we didn't get that we got what we got uh, yeah. And now we're this very strange period in history with Biden, who seems to sleep through climate talks, which is probably better than that being actively part of it, frankly. So I'm not criticizing him. Um, but we go on forever. And as entertaining as it would be for our yeah. listeners, we'll have to pick it up again. What are the kind of core things to, to kind of wrap it up? Mm-hmm. Your focus on the square mile, uh, more mm-hmm. Britain, more writ large after Brexit. You know, what are the key things that you are part of policymaking, pushing for, hope for, in terms of how Britain kind of refreshes its uh, economic and political engagement with, mm-hmm. the, with the rest of the world after Brexit has happened? What, what do you see as the hopeful hallmarks and where do you see the pitfalls? Well, well, I mean, it's not kind of in the public kind of eyes very much, but I think one of the ironies post-Brexit is that uh, the Department of International Trade, when it was run by Liz Truss, uh, and particularly animated by Greg Hans, who was the trade policy minister, did a lot of good work about hustling Britain back in commercially, trade deals, rollover some of them, but some of them knew. Um, now, neither of them voted for Brexit. They were both kind of critical, but they've actually done a lot to deliver on, on our position. Then I think if we're looking at the kind of the, the Mediterranean, sorry, not the Mediterranean, the Pacific situation and how the UK is working with Australia and the US to to some extent to contain um, uh, Chinese aggression. I think that's good as well. I I think there's a lot of complication there. But if we're looking at trade, and it is the DIT, and both Liz Truss and Greg Hans have moved on from the the department, but uh, Liz is now a foreign secretary, thankfully. Um, And if we're looking at kind of security and defense, I think we are beginning to wake up. What I'd like to do is just where I can that kind of fulcrum in financial services is get the city a little bit more appreciative that our values and our interests are at stake if we don't defend them and articulate them properly. And, and, and on the China debate, that means face a bit of challenge and have the confidence and courage to, to, to do so. Hmm. Um, and apart from that, I think my other challenges are domestic, just you know, keep the kids happy and-, uh, uh, and, and An impossible terrible. task. Good training for any politician. <laughs> well, yeah. Exactly. And, and I'll keep my fingers crossed. I, I mean, I see there's a close race in Virginia. And of course, you know, the way I'm leaning, I'm hoping um, it might go to Republican. I, I would hope so. It's, um, I, I appreciate that. And thanks. We'll, we'll circle back on more Brexit stuff at a later time. Um, but to close out with that, um, where my hope is, and I, don't, and I don't know why I still have this hope, because um, the American political class has done something astonishing to their benefit, to no one else's. Hmm. They have managed to make 
the majority of Americans so apathetic mm-hmm. that the political class wins by default, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were, you know, my wife and I, multi-generation Native New Yorkers, the, the night Warren Wilhelm Jr., a communist, mm-hmm. who gladly supported the Sandinistas and bizarrely renamed himself Bill de Blasio, and I still don't know why, don't care actually. Um, the night he won the mayoral election the first time, in New York, mm-hmm. we sat there staring at the screen and I was like, well, I'm done, I'm out of here. Like I already live in the most expensive city in America, taxed to the hilt. I'm not thanked for it, no, no. I'm told in fact I should pay more so his deadbeat constituents could take more of my stuff um, so my kids can't have it, right? Um, but he won with 11% or so of the, of the voting vote, voting eligible adults voting. 89% or something of, of people didn't bother to vote. And I kind of, I'm willing to forgive people for 20 years of prosperity under, under Giuliani and then Bloomberg. Um, but there was no excuse to reelect this clown. Like none. At the end of four years, they reelected this idiot. You deserve everything you get. I mean, that that is completely... You know, what was it, Mencken, that said democracy is the idea that the people are going to, you know, get what they deserve and get it good and hard? Well, they, he's destroyed a city that that mm-hmm. took forever to rebuild from the ashes of the rotten apple. He destroyed mm-hmm. it. And yeah. bizarre, absolutely bizarre. And we, and I thank God we live in Florida where Ron DeSantis has been, yeah. done a phenomenal job as governor, which you know is true because the media hates him. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's absolutely bizarre. But there, that hung on a thread. You think of the Virginia race, I hope it goes the right way because last heard from, the guy that DeSantis beat, the Democrat DeSantis beat by like 20,000 votes is a very narrow margin. He was found um, high on methamphetamines with a bunch of hookers in a motel in Jacksonville. So that could have been my governor during this viral pandemic. Wow, did we dodge a bullet. Wow. So I hope the people of Virginia don't get McAuliffe back in there, who was a known lunatic. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. What was your um, uh, other candidate wearing a mask, at least, with the the hookers and... and, and (laughs) (laughs) You you know what? That would be just... I would hope so. That would be pricelessly funny. But the Democrats managed to quietly hustle him out of you, right? But he he was a flake, and he would have been, you know, one more screaming liberal idiot small L American uh, who would have gone right along with all this insanity would have been like California and Michigan and New York with masks for everyone and shut the world down until no one's sick. Thank God he wasn't elected. I mean, really? Wow. So I have high hopes the people of Virginia are going to rise up against this nonsense, Uh, but we'll see. There will be a correction at some point. And as you say, I mean, a lot of what Trump did, whether it was influenced by the heritage foundation or just kind of innately was pretty good policy. Great just, policy. And the man couldn't shut up if he had just gotten out of the way. He brought peace well, to the Middle East. He's got these direct flights between Tel Aviv and, and, and Abu Dhabi. That's awesome. I know. If only he could have had that likable quality of Reagan, I think he would have gone right back into office. And yes. Have a different but. And the tragedy was for everything he did that was great, he shot himself in the foot a day later for uh-huh. saying insane things and, and uh-huh. just pointlessly picking fights. And it's it was his inability to shut up that lost the election. Um, anyway, we shall see. So Brexit, the world didn't end. Political change can happen. 
Um, the, 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 the arc of history is long and swings, swings both ways. Hopefully it doesn't go too far into chaos, but Mark, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Deeply appreciate it. My pleasure in a way that they could not have been had I been here alone. <laughs> I, I am sure that's not the case, but it's been a real pleasure being with you and, and, and uh, I look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks, Thanks a lot. And for everyone else, until next time, turn off the news. They're lying to you. Tune into Messy Times.